You may be seated. Thank you for joining us this morning and uh, gathering with the members of South Canyon Baptist Church. I'd like to begin with prayer before we examine our text this morning from 1 Thessalonians 5. So would you pray with me? Lord, we gather this morning to praise you. And we gather today to thank you with all our hearts as we meet with your godly people. If we were to take time to reflect on all the deeds of the Lord, we would never finish that list. All who delight in you should consider them. Everything you do reveals your glory and majesty. Your righteousness never fails. You cause us to remember your wonderful works, how precious and merciful you are, Lord. You give food to those who fear you. You remember always your covenant with us, even when we forget. You show your great power to your people by giving them the lands of other nations, as the psalmist said. You've given us an inheritance All that you do is just and good. Your commandments are trustworthy. They're forever true. We need to obey them faithfully and with integrity. For you have paid a full ransom for us, Lord. You have guaranteed your covenant with us forever. What a holy, awe-inspiring name you have. We're instructed in the Psalms that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom that all who obey his commandments will grow in wisdom and praise him forever. Lord, we pray that you would grant us never to lose the sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of his holiness and the exceeding wonder of his grace. We are guilty, but pardoned. We are lost but saved. We are wandering but found. We are sinning but cleansed. Give us perpetual brokenheartedness. Keep us always clinging to thy cross. Lord, as we move from within the walls of this church and the body at South Canyon, we we pray, Lord, as we are instructed to, for those in authority and So this morning, we lift up the school teachers and administrators here in Rapid City and in Pennington County. We pray that this summer would be a time of refreshment for them. Help them to know and follow you as a result of gospel witness by parents and others. We pray for our officials, Lord. They need wisdom. They need integrity. They need righteous resolve. And we pray that they too would know Jesus in a transformative way. And we pray for our brethren at Calvary Baptist this morning. And if Josh is preaching, we pray that you would give great grace and strength. For our brethren at Redeeming Grace, and that you would be with Josh Brown as well. Lord, let your word just echo in the hearts of those who hear it today. And Father, as we commemorate a day when the good news reached those last slaves that slavery had been abolished. We rejoice that this is no longer the law of this land 
And yet we acknowledge and mourn that injustices still persist. And our prayer is that through the good news of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins that's found in Jesus Christ, that as it is being proclaimed, it would transform our nation so that people, regardless of tribe or language or color, would not only be treated equally under the law, but that they would also know their creator and enjoy him forever. And Lord, we also pray that you would bring an end to this war and violence in Ukraine. The toll of human suffering is more than we can comprehend. And yet there are many Christians who remain there, committed to sharing the gospel, both to Ukrainians and to Russians. And so, Lord, for the sake of the spread of the gospel, we pray that you would restore peace and order. And now as we look to your word this morning, teach us, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are eager to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would open your copy of the scriptures and join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning. If you didn't bring a copy of the Bible with you or your guest here, we invite you to use one of the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you, and you can turn to page 988. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that as a gift, um, and we encourage you to uh, know God's Word, read it, and study it. And if we can be a blessing in that way, uh, then praise the Lord for that. We are concluding our study through First Thessalonians today. And then next week, we will begin in 2 Thessalonians. Some estimate that book was just written months after the first letter. But 1 Thessalonians has shown us a clear presentation of the gospel allows people to hear and receive it for what it really is, that it's God's word. And when genuine conversion occurs, people's very lives are drastically changed how they live, how they talk, how they work, how they care for their families. All of that is altered by an experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. Even, even so, people who are persecuted for their new faith are able to persevere. You see, God saves us in order to sanctify and make us holy. And that ought to lead to a quiet life, a working diligently, so that we have a good testimony before non-believers. Now, what we saw also is that while the Thessalonians got this understanding, many of them got sidetracked with this whole idea of the coming of the Lord and the imminent return of Jesus Christ to claim His church. And that became an excuse for Christians to return to old sinful habits. It came, became an excuse for Christians to kind of panic that maybe God had come, as some were saying, and that they had missed that boat, and therefore they were left behind. So Paul corrects those things. He tells them that we know that the Lord will raise the dead in Christ, and they will join all who are living at His return and meet Him in the air. And so he urges them once again to recommit themselves to practice holiness and preparation, to encourage and build one another up until the Lord returns. And that is why he concludes his letter with this call 
to respect and follow their church leaders, along with numerous practical instructions on how to live out the gospel. So this morning, I want to leave you with this thought. What does it look like to be a gospel-centered church? Well, as Paul concludes this letter, I think he lays out for us what it means and what it looks like to be a gospel-centered church. So believers who hear the gospel and respond to it now collect in groups called a congregation. And they commit themselves to the teaching and to living out the teaching in this community. What does that look like? Well, our passage, I think, has four movements. So I'm going to run through these quickly. If you're taking notes, it's okay because I'm going to repeat them. All right? Uh, The gospel asks members to respect their leaders. That's verses 12 and 13. Really simple, very clear, plain English. Church members, as a result of the gospel, respect your leaders. The gospel also calls members of the church to care for one another. And this is the bulk of the passage, verses 14 through 22. Paul will really tease this out. And therefore, these first two points are where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Then the third movement of the passage is that the gospel comforts members of the church in knowing that God will complete His saving, sanctifying, and preserving work. Those are verses 23 and 24. And finally, as we come to verses 25 through 28, we see that the gospel creates a family bond with other members of the body and even their ministry partners that is undeniable. So let's dig into this first thought. Um, Verses 12 through 13. This morning, instead of reading the passage in its entirety, I'm going to just limit it to where we're at in the, in the sermon so that it will help you follow along. So I'm going to read verses 12 and 13 from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So the gospel is asking members of the church to respect their elders, their leaders, to pay proper respect. Now, that word is to be considered of, to be appreciative for, the true character and work of those who practice three things, as outlined in these two verses. First, we see they labor among you. And this is a reality that many don't understand and appreciate about leadership within a congregation. I've been razzed often that I work one day a week. I, you know, that may be what you see, but that's far from the truth. Labor was first used by Paul back in chapter 1 and verse 3. And what's interesting there is that Paul expressed his appreciation in his opening comments to the church for their labors in love in the gospel. Paul's applauding this church. You guys love Jesus and you are spending yourselves for the gospel ministry. But this time, instead of speaking of the church's labor, he's pointing the church to the labor of their leaders. Their leaders are laboring in their midst. Not just one person, but all those who give themselves to such work. And the idea of labor, in case you haven't done it in a while, 
is that of working to the point of fatigue. They weary themselves with toil, the burdens and the griefs of the congregation. The work of an elder includes both physical and mental weariness. Now, I'm thankful that this church recognizes that. So, pastors are encouraged to take Friday and Saturday off. And you may work six days a week. You may work seven days a week. And, and I'm sorry. Like, literally, I am. I, I could only do that for so long, and then it would burn me out. But even taking just one day a week is, is, is really tough because um, there's so much mental weight in ministry that you can't just check out. I remember working in a factory when 11 p.m. showed up. Man, I didn't think at all about working on the line until 3 p.m. the next day. That's not the way it is with ministry. Paul says, I carry the burdens of the churches on my heart. And even though our time together, you and me as a congregation, is short, I'm growing in my love and affection for you. And I know the other elders feel the same way. They love you, and they don't get to check out of caring for the members of this church. Even when we're having fun, texts, phone calls come, needs arise. So Paul is saying, I respect you guys for your labors. Now I'm calling you to respect those who expend their energies to labor in your midst. And then he adds a second thing. Not only are they laboring among you, but they are over you in the Lord. Now, Paul writes to the Corinthians later. This is how one should regard us, okay? I'm not the Pope. I'm not even a Baptist Pope. I'm not even someone that is really, uh, like, well-known or famous in any stretch of the imagination. But this is how you and we as a church should regard those who are laboring in our midst as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. We don't have like keys to the secret compartment behind the church where all the answers are hidden. We don't have any greater access to the Holy of Holies and to the throne of grace than you do. But there is an element where our role within the congregation is to be serving Christ and explaining and unveiling the mysteries of the Word so that it builds up the church for the work of ministry. And the participle that Paul has, now some of us might have chafed at those who are over you. Over you in the Lord is qualified. Over you, I should say, is qualified by over you in the Lord. So let me just make two brief observations. Over you refers to the authority of leadership. And in no way does it refer to value as though one is better than another. Elders better than deacons. Elders better than congregants, members of the church. No, that's not how it works. The, the over you is the authority. And we've seen poorly used authority, haven't we? We've all experienced it, whether you're working at a fast food restaurant and the boss is lazy and they're all harping on you to do all the work they're supposed to do, a shift manager, or whether it's in the factory or whether it's in the fields or whether it's in politics or in society or even in the church. We've all seen and been challenged by poor leadership. Paul's point is not that one is better than another, but that we respect and appreciate those who have a responsibility 
for us. We can be confident that they will bear accountability for those under their leadership and care, as Hebrews 13, 17 says. There will be a day where everyone who has served as an elder of this church will give an answer for their ministry to the Lord. Secondly, Paul says, this leadership is in the Lord. In other words, it's ordained by God. You see, God built the church in such a way that it needs leadership that uses its gifting to build a reflection of God's own character. The problem comes when we appoint or elect or just submit to leaders who don't meet God's standard of leadership is found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Yes, it's true, bad leaders give leadership a bad name, but good leaders are to be respected and appreciated. And so God designed leadership in the church to be exercised according to His character and His purposes. The elders of South Canyon Baptist Church and of every good gospel-centered church are to be leading the members of that body in Christ and to Christ. And then here's the third aspect of this leadership within the church that Paul urges the believers, calls the believers to submit to. Those who admonish you, men who caution, reprove, gently warn, who exhort you to continue to resist the flesh and to follow Jesus. In just a few minutes, the elders of this church will stand before the congregation in order to share the bread and the cup. These men have been appointed by this congregation, recognizing their gifts to guard and protect this congregation from deception, from temptation, and sin. But not only are they to guard and defend, they are also to provide pastoral care and nourishment. And that happens as we pray over this church, as we counsel with you, as we teach, and as we serve. And those who labor in such ways are worthy of your respect because of the work they do. Now, this is Father's Day. Dads, good job. You survived another year. Happy Father's Day to you. And I hope that as we were walking through just even these two verses, that you see the connections that are so obvious to fatherhood. This is the calling of every father, isn't it? To spend ourselves, to fatigue ourselves, not just for the physical provision of our families, food, shelter, and clothing, but to nourish them, their souls, to emotionally connect with them and help them to mature. We've been given this authority from the Lord, and it's our responsibility to instruct, to mentor, and model what it means to know and follow Christ. So dads, I hope that you will continue to do that. And hear it now that you have a friend in this church who equally struggles, who equally needs help, who equally yearns to be better at fulfilling his responsibilities as a father. You're not alone. Next, Paul says that leaders worthy of our highest are not only worthy of our respect, but of our high esteem in verse 13 because of the work. 
In other words, Paul's making an appeal for members of the church to observe the ministry of the elders in their midst, their toil, their care, their warnings, and then to respond with respect, love, and willing submission. Like Paul before us, godly elders ought to give themselves in heart, mind, body, and soul to the shepherding work because of our love for Christ and His church. And therefore, as we benefit from our elders' shepherding ministry, we ought to esteem them very highly for their gospel work. It is wonderful to know that in spite of the failings of our physical under-shepherds, that we have a chief shepherd who is righteous. You know, your pastors will never fully measure up to your expectations. There's just physical limitations. We can't be in all places at all times. We can't give the amount of time and attention that some may want and some may need. We're going to disappoint you with decisions that we make or an unthoughtful moment and we say something that's unkind or impatient. But praise God that Jesus is a righteous and faithful shepherd. Praise Him that He is a true great high priest. He prays and advocates for us. He promises that He's truly reconciled us to God. That is why that we can pray with absolute certainty that our prayers are actually being heard and that God's purposes are being fulfilled. And the day is truly coming when we will see Him and be like Him as He is. Which is why Paul can say, be at peace among yourselves. Because you know this chief shepherd. You know this faithful pastor. That you've been reconciled to God through Jesus. That produces a lasting peace. And it must also be a peace that's exercised. That means that you have to keep pursuing it. You have to keep focusing on it. We must work to maintain peace in the church. There's so many differences. So many differences of who we are as individuals, that they tend to crowd to the front within our church and we need to push them aside. And I'm thankful that we labor in the midst of pastors and elders who love and obey Jesus. And it's also been my experience, even in this short period of time, to see that this church loves and willingly follows its leadership. What a gift that is. The gospel is producing a peace in us that mirrors that of a body in perfect health where all parts are equal and valuable and all parts are contributing and working in harmony with one another. So let us work to be a church that is at peace with one another. In these verses, the congregation was instructed how to honor those who ministered to them. Now we move to the big section, verses 14 through 22, where the congregation is instructed on how they ought to care for one another. So this again goes back to what Paul will say in Ephesians about pastors and teachers. The gift that they are to a church is to teach the members how the members are to care for each other. And I don't want you to miss this because Paul's not further describing how pastors and elders labor, how they instruct and admonish and their leadership. He's now talking to the congregation, the every person in the chair, about how they ought to live in this gospel church. 
God has saved them, and he is now sanctifying. So here we come to the second point. I told you we were going to spend a lot on the first two. I tr- trust me, the last two go pretty quick. So the gospel calls members of the church to care for one another in verses 14 through 22. Now, I think verses 14 and 15 highlight gospel actions that ought to be displayed inside the church when we gather and even as we go into our places of work, where we shop, and where we live. And so we see how Christians in the church, members, are to admonish the idol. So Paul says back in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So as we have conversations with one another in our life groups or just standing in the foyer or some relationship that we have and we're talking and texting or calling or sitting over a meal during the week and we see a brother or a sister in Christ who's struggling and who is wanting to pull away from the church, pull away from the teaching of Christ, pull away from their call as his disciple, we have a responsibility to instruct, exhort, encourage, and challenge that person to walk in a manner worthy of God. Interestingly, the word idol um, is a former military term that was used back in that day. And then eventually it became applied to anything or anyone that was out of order. So you have idle people, as we saw in chapter 4, that were not working because they believed Christ's return was so imminent, why go to work? I want to be ready for him. And then they were becoming a pull on the resources of the church. They were expecting others to take care of them. So Paul's saying very clearly, Christians who neglect their duty to Christ and his church need to be admonished. They had a responsibility as a church member to speak grace, hope, and correction into the lives of their fellow members. The next three verbs point out the positive gospel actions that the church is supposed to practice. Now, we might not think of admonishment as a positive, but it is to be done in love for the sake of turning that one back to the way of Jesus. But these are clear and evident. There's encouragement. There's help. There's the call to be patient. And what's interesting to me is over and over and over throughout verses 14 through 22, Paul repeatedly uses imperatives. He's instructing. He's giving orders in the military sense. He is calling people to a way, and there is no other way. This is the way. Walk ye in it. So, he says, we need to encourage those who are worried, who are fearful and discouraged. We need to help the morally and spiritually weak. We need to never lose patience with those who fail, but to continue to be considerate, long-suffering, and enduring. Given that the Thessalonians were suffering for their new faith in Christ, no doubt some had responded to their opponents in ways that didn't reflect Christ. You remember when Christ was hit? He didn't rebuke. You remember when Christ was brutalized? He didn't fight back and struggle. And it's a tendency of us, especially us Americans in our individualistic society, that we are not going to let anybody tell us what's right or wrong. And when we are put backed into a corner, we are going to come fighting. We're going to come out fighting. That's not new. But look at how Paul instructs them. 
in verses 14 and 15, or 14 through 22. Let me me read these because I missed my own notes, okay? And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so here we see Paul is now responding to those who are fighting back, as we see in verse 15. He wants them to understand that their human responses do not produce godliness. See that no one repays anyone for evil. And again, Paul wants the entire church to understand that they will be held responsible for the conduct of each individual member of the congregation. And think about this. In a society that is anti-Christian and people know that these group are gathering together and they call themselves Christians and one in their number starts fighting back and rebelling or pushing back against persecution, then all of the congregation are going to be labeled as troublemakers, right? It goes to make sense. And so Paul wants them to know that you guys are responsible to do this because your reputation as a gathering of Christ followers is on the line here. This is why we can't take anything that he says in this section as though it's no big deal. Well, that's the pastor's job. That's the elder's responsibility. This is our responsibility as a congregation. Not only must each person not retaliate against those who do evil to us, but in fact, we may need to make sure that no one in the church retaliates. And so that's why he says, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Who's not included in that? I mean, we're all included, right? We are to do good to y'all. We are to seek good and good things for one another, and then lest we think, oh, this is just the Christian only thing, we are to even do good to those who are not part of us. That's the everyone in the end of verse 15, to the non-Christian alike. And next, in verses 16 through 18, Paul instructs us on the inner attitudes So he's spoken to us in verses 14 and 15 about actions to be displayed both inside the congregation and outside the church. And now he speaks to the inner attitudes that ought to govern the hearts of those changed by the gospel in verses 16 through 18. And notice, he begins with rejoice always. I don't know if you thought about this this morning, but your joy as a follower of Christ is never dependent on your circumstances. Now, I know that's not natural, and it's not supposed to be. We have the supernatural spirit of God dwelling in us. Our joy, we get excited. I mean, it's summer, right? School's out, and it's hot, and there's water around. So we can get happy about that. And that water's not ice, right? It's not snow. But our joy is never to be dependent on our circumstances. Our joy is dependent on our salvation. We have joy because we know 
we are forgiven. We know that God has accepted us because of Jesus' righteousness. And we have both now in the moment and in the future promised blessings that will be given to us by God. And that's why he says pray without ceasing. This idea of repeatedly and constant prayer. Now, I, I know that you think that's impossibility. I've got to talk to people, and I've got to do things, and I can't free myself up to pray at the same time I'm doing these things. It's, it's an impossibility. It's an exercise in futility. Well, let me just ask you, have you ever had a cough that just doesn't go away? You know that thing just, like, just pops up whenever it wants, and you start coughing, And it lasts for what seems like forever. That, I think, is the idea of praying without ceasing. This, not a nagging cough, but this positive heart. I just have so much to pray about. So much to think about. Jesus delighted to do the will of the Father. So, too, we who are united with Christ ought to delight to do the will. And so what Paul says is we are also to give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances. Some of us are going through some bad circumstances right now. And it's hard to rejoice. It is hard to even pray. If God really loves me, why would he put me in this place? And we have to go back and preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to remind ourselves of what I just said a few moments ago. For the Christian, our security is not in anything in this world, not even in our own bodies. We're temporary. We're like the grass, the flower that appears, and then the sun burns it away. Like the fog and the mist that appears, and then the heat of the noonday drives it away. We are temporary. Even our very bodies are temporal. So we root ourselves in the doctrine, the teaching, the truth, that Jesus paid it all, and all to Him we owe. Not as though we could repay Him for what He's done, but that our lives, whether in joy or in sorrow, whether in tragedy or triumph, whether in good seasons or bad seasons, we live unto the Lord. And there there we have a joy that no prison can take from us. That no punishment, no persecution, no circumstances can rob us of. We know that God indeed loves us, for He took His own Son's life. And not for good people, mind you. He did this for His enemies. How can we doubt His love? Our joy gives us the ability to give thanks, even in hard times. Paul then moves in verses 19 through 22 to instruct the members of the church about its corporate gatherings and their response to the preaching of the word. So follow along as I read these passages. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So don't quench the Spirit is to hear the Spirit speaking to you and prompting you and then to shut it down. Paul says, no, instead of stifling, instead of pouring water on the fire, I want you to respond with obedience rather than resistance. And in fact, he says, don't despise prophecies. 
What does that mean? That's the preaching of God's Word. Now, I think perhaps what's going on here is that these new Christians valued the signs and wonder gifts, you know, the speaking in tongues and perhaps the healings, more than the preaching of God's Word. And so when they were gathered together as a church, what are they supposed to do? We know that they're supposed to read God's Word. They're supposed to pray over the Word and in accordance with the Word. They're to sing praises to their Savior. And then they're to submit to the teaching and preaching of the Word, not as the bad part of the medicine after we've had all the good, but to treasure the Word of God. And so in human nature being what it is, the, the miraculous and the spectacular can easily triumph the foolishness of preaching. Let's just be honest. For 30, 40 minutes, maybe longer, we sit and listen to someone give a monologue. That is so unnatural in the world in which we live. You're asking people to stop. I mean, in a day of Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat where everything is just blistering, moving, You're asking people to stop life as they practice it and to sit under the Word. It's so unnatural. And yet that's the way God has ordered His church. And Paul says, don't downgrade the gift of preaching. Value it. And this is relevant today when I think the church has become distracted by the idea that that worship is somehow separated from preaching of the Word, that worship is, you know, what John and the others had led us through. It's the music part of it. It's the singing. It's the, it's the spectacular, the emotions that come and the feeling that comes from that. And somehow we've, we've bifurcated what real worship is. True worship is spirit and truth, not one or the other. They're not enemies. They're not opposed to one another. And so here at South Canyon, we do it poorly at times. I confess that. But we try to keep both of them coupled together. J.A. Packer writes, Congregations never honor God more than by reverently listening to His Word with a full purpose of praising and obeying Him once they see what He has done and is doing and what they are called to do. Jeff Perswell, another pastor, puts it this way. When God's word is being preached, you're not merely receiving information about God. God himself is addressing you through his word. I know that to be true because there are so many things I would edit out of the scriptures. I don't have that luxury. Because God is speaking through the preaching of His Word, we need to realize our responsibility as we listen. And here's the sobering reality. Just as pastors and elders are accountable for their shepherding and their work and their labors in the church, so too are every single one of us accountable for the truth we've heard. Regardless of whether it moved us emotionally or not. So Paul says we need to not quench the Spirit, we need to not despise the preaching, but we need to test everything. And this is a positive thing. This isn't speculation, this isn't cynicism, this isn't suspicion, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. It should come as no surprise to anyone that after Paul prohibits despising of preaching, that he instructs the church to approve 
the preaching they hear after they see it in the Scriptures. Take what you hear and make sure it's consistent with the Scriptures and how blessed we are as a church. I mean this beyond South Canyon, but as a church in this day and age that we have faithful translations of God's Word in our own language. Which means there's no excuse for us to not have our Bibles open and taking notes so that we can positively engage in what we're hearing and approve what is true. We've even made it easy by providing copies here. Preaching today is much like it was in Paul's day. There's not a lot of dialogue going. We're not having a discourse. You and I aren't asking and answering questions of one another, whether it's sharing it in oral form as we are right now, or it's written form as Paul did with the Thessalonians. What you've heard this morning, we encourage you to take that and mull it over. Compare it with the text itself, and then where there is truth, affirm it and order your life around it. You know, eating food and listening to preaching have a lot of the same routine. You chew before you swallow, right? That's why we often encourage our members to take what you've heard in the morning service and digest it over lunch through conversations with one another and approve what is true. It's also why our life groups order themselves around the text that was preached that previous Sunday so that their conversations are not just hearing the Word, but they're wrestling with its implications and the application of it. And what we have heard, is it true and is it worthy of obeying and following? And Paul says, what is good? You cling to it. You hold fast to it. You be attentive to it and act accordingly. And then he says... In case I didn't cover anything, in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. All that he has said and anything he has left out, we as Christians are to abstain from evil. The outcome of a gospel, faithful gospel church is that through the preaching of God's own word, one becomes educated on what is good and what is evil, and they know what evil to avoid. So it's clear that being a Christian leads to real gospel obligations in our relationships with other believers. Remember, Paul is writing to a church which has heard and believed the good news that Jesus is the way to salvation from sin and reconciliation to God. And now Paul has taught these new believers how to live in community with each other. Practically speaking, I think Paul is describing how church membership ought to function. I mean, he doesn't use the word church member, but what is he doing? He's writing to a community who are gathered. He's not writing to one person. He's writing to people who have rallied around the gospel and committing themselves to it. And he says you need to support and respect your teachers. And you need to fulfill your responsibilities to one another. And now we come to verse 23 and 24. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
And here we see where the gospel comforts members of the church that God, in fact, no matter how they struggle against sin, no matter how painful life is for them, no matter how uncertain our future is in this world, that we have absolute bedrock confidence that God will accomplish His saving and sanctifying and preserving work. Our faith will be made sight. And Paul grounds his teaching in the very character of God himself. Don't miss this. The God who calls us is the one who empowers us to obey. The reason that you can't follow Jesus is perhaps because you don't know Jesus. It could be that you're resisting the Spirit. You have been quenching Him. But when we yield ourselves to Christ, there is this innate spirit of obedience and of humbling and of longing for what's right and what is good. Paul says that God is personally interested in our sanctification and our salvation and our preservation. He himself will nurture his children. Now may the God of peace, think of this, God graciously gives all blessings in salvation. He himself will sanctify us completely. He ensures that our separation from sin will occur and our devotion to holiness will come about. And he says, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that idea of spirit, soul, and body isn't to argue about are we two or are we three. It is to emphasize the entirety of all we are and the completeness of God's saving and sanctifying work. You see, God's not just interested in washing the outside of us and making us look pretty on Sundays. He wants to change our very character who we are, and that character and that heart are reflected in the things we see and we do. And so God will change our spirit, our soul, and our body. He will sanctify us because He is keeping us. Your Creator is keeping you until the day you meet Jesus. You can't be in any better hands than that. There is no Allstate commercial that can measure up to that. He knows you. He loves you. Church, trust Jesus. He is good. He is wise. He is loving. He is patient. He is kind. He is a friend of sinners. He doesn't condone sin, but He loves sinners. He will be patient and long-suffering with you as you grow and follow Him. And then, in case they didn't get it, Paul says once again, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do. He is trustworthy. He keeps his promises. As we've learned in in this letter, when our Lord Jesus returns and we see him, our sanctification and our glorification will be completed. Which is why Paul would confidently write later to another church in Philippi and say, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the gospel comforts members of the church that God himself will complete his saving, sanctifying, and preserving work. This brings us to the fourth and final movement. And it's just a brief series here in verses 25 through 28. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with the holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see this, this family bond that was formed within the congregation, this where they were caring for one another, where they were calling each other to repentance and faith, where they were helping the weak, they were bearing patiently with those who were struggling, who were fearful, who were idle. They were pressing in in people's lives. They were knowing people intentionally, walking across the room to meet and to converse and to care for one another. And Paul says, not only will you have a strong family bond within the church, but you guys love me and I love you. And we have gospel partnerships with missionaries around the world whom we love and know and support. And that is all born out of how the gospel makes a gospel-centered church. Pray for us. Paul says, as we prayed for you, pray for us. Pass on our brotherly affection and greeting. So greet the brothers with a holy kiss. There was a common custom in that day to greet one another by kissing each other on the cheeks. And then he puts them under an oath before the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers. He wants the public reading of the letter before the entire church. And then closes with the most simple and profound benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. A gospel-centered church is where members respect their leaders and care for one another because of the great, redeeming, sanctifying, preserving work which Christ has done for us. And the byproduct is a bond that connects us, members and ministry partners. This is our church. This is what God has called us to. This is what we're called to pursue, to practice to give our lives for. Lord, help us in these ways. Help us, Lord, to see even where we have failed. Not to somehow punish ourselves and be grieved to the point of incapacity where we just want to give up and walk away, but to see that in Christ, our righteousness, our inadequacies have been filled up. And that because we are no longer under the burden to be perfect, we can be obedient followers. Out of a joy that is not circumstantial, but it's rooted in our salvation. Lord, even as we move into communion, I pray that you would teach us how the connection that we have with you through this reenactment, as it were, the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup, we are not re-crucifying Christ, but we are remembering what he has done for us that brings union with you, community with you, but also unites us with one another. And so, Lord, help us to not miss that connection that what we're reading and seeing in the text is not just about how we care for our elders, but how we care for one another, and that reflects our understanding of the gospel. So deepen our faith. Bring faith to those who may be here this morning who are intrigued by the gospel, who are hearing that Jesus alone can save and reconcile sinners to God. We pray that there would be much fruit through the preaching of your word, that your spirit would not be quenched, but would be invited and welcomed in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. And ask-